have a Purdue fan somewhere in the audience. I, I wasn't aware. I, 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 yeah. Uh, and I also am contractually obligated to say an Illinois clip is coming. All right. So don't get all worked up about it in, in Illinois. So we uh, started this series a couple weeks ago called The Big Ten. And we are looking at these 10 stories that appear in all four of the Gospels. Uh, there's not a ton of like stories that are repeated in the four Gospels, but there's 10 of them. And so we figure if it's repeated, it must be important. And so we're kind of studying through these stories. And uh, in addition to the resurrection, the resurrection would be definitely true of this. The story we're going to study today is of no surprise to me that it isn't repeated in all four because it gets to one of the questions that I think everybody asks at some point in their life, and it's, who is Jesus? Who, who is this man? And so we're going to try to answer that uh, through, uh, through the book of Matthew today. We're going to study a story that the entire faith is, is built on the foundation that we're going to study today. Um, and and we'll, we'll explore that some more together. So let's pray. All right. Lord, we thank you for the day. Uh, we thank you for this amazing, uh, great confession of Peter. Uh, almost everything we do is built on this idea that he expressed, that, that, an idea that you gave him. He didn't really know what it was all about, but uh, you moved him to say this uh, about Jesus. And I just pray that we would, by the end of this message, we would see Jesus for who he is and what he came to do. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I think that when you think about our culture trying to answer this question about who Jesus is, I think there's a variety of kind of cultural views on Jesus. So for instance, one view would be like vending machine Jesus, right? Where if I put my money in and I you know, volunteer in Kids Zone for five years, right, and, and I do my part, then I can select my button of what I want and Jesus is going to deliver. That if I, if I just do enough and I give enough and I am enough, then I can go to the vending machine, I can select my Diet Coke, my Doritos, whatever, and Jesus will absolutely deliver if I just do my part. There's also Jesus, the political candidate in our culture that you can Google today, uh, not during the message, but you can Google later today, was Jesus a Republican or was Jesus a Democrat? And you will get hundreds and hundreds of articles, each claiming one side knows what Jesus's political views would have been. And, and I think this in particular has really amped up the last 10 years or so, this belief that the primary work of God is going to be through the political system. And if that's true, we're all in trouble, right? If, if that's true. So the idea of it is we need to advocate in church for certain, for certain uh, political candidates, certain pieces of legislation, certain initiatives. And listen, if you believe in something, you should advocate for it. If you believe something's wrong, you should advocate for it. But just understand the political system in the New Testament is never referred to as the body of Christ. A political candidate has never been called the light of the world. A piece of legislation is not the hope of the world. The church, what you are a part of, is God's plan to bring joy and hope and peace to the world. So political engagement right now is at an all-time high because we believe it's our savior, and church attendance is at an all-time low because we've lost hope that it can enact change. So Jesus, the political candidate, Jesus, the best friend or buddy, this was a big one when I was growing up, but we're just, you know, almost like co-equals. You know, he's my co-pilot, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm the actual pilot. He's the co-pilot. Uh, I make the decisions. He supports my decisions, and he is my best friend. He is my 
buddy. And listen, there are verses that talk about being a friend of God. We sing a song sometimes here about being a friend of God, and it's 100% true, but we just don't want to lose our sense of majesty and awe for the greatness of who Jesus is. I heard one in Sunday school this morning that's not actually in my notes, another one of Jesus as part of a portfolio, that a lot of people view Jesus as, I want Jesus in my portfolio, but I don't want him to be the only thing. I don't want to get too invested in, in, in the Jesus thing because I got to have other options. And so that, that was a, a, an important one that I, that I heard just this morning. And then Jesus the therapist in Soul Searching, uh, Christian Smith talked about that by and large, the way Christianity is perceived today is a thing called moralistic therapeutic deism. And according to this view of God, if we live good lives, if we're good to our neighbor, if we're kind to others, then God will provide quote unquote therapeutic benefits to our self-esteem and our happiness. Other than that, God's not much involved in our world. So like a therapist, when I call, he's there. When I need him, he shows up. But outside of that, he's really uh, not there. So we're trying to figure out who Jesus is as a culture. And lots of people have different ideas and lots of people have different theories. But I want to really dive in this morning. Who was and is Jesus? John Ortberg writes this. Normally, when someone dies, their impact on the world begins to recede. Jesus' impact has become greater as the years have passed. His vision of life continues to haunt and challenge humanity. Jesus' influence has extended to art, science, government, medicine, and education. He never married, but the way he treated women led to the dissolution of the sexual double standard. He had no children, but his kindness toward them led others to value them as people. Jesus wrote no books, but his call to love God with all of our minds created a reverence for learning. Jesus held no office, had no army, but his example led to the end of emperor worship, from his example, words such as endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights entered history. His example of compassion for the least of these inspired us to create hospitals and relief efforts and unprecedented compassion on this world. John Ortberg would go on to title the name of this book that I just quoted, Who is This Man? Who is this man? Jesus who is he? And so each of the gospel writers repeat the story that gets into who Jesus is. I'm going to share with you, like I said, Matthew's account. And let me show you kind of how this account goes. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his people, who do people say the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah and, or, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He said, who do you say I am? It's a question every single person has to ask at some point and answer. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. Peter, I know you didn't come up with this on your own, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. Always kind of an interesting thing. Hey, don't tell anyone, right? Eventually it will be tell the whole world. But for, at this point, stage in life, hey, don't tell anyone. So he says, who do people say that I am? I said, well, first of all, some people would say that you are John the Baptist, and I'm not at all surprised by this. A couple chapters before this, John the Baptist had been leveraging criticism against Herod Antipas. 
Uh, Herod uh, was the son of Herod from the story of Jesus' birth that killed all the kids two years old and, and younger uh, to try to kill off the Christ. And this Herod Antipas was his son, and he had married his brother's wife. And John the Baptist, that was the forerunner of Jesus, Herod, John started to leverage public criticism against Herod's marriage. He said, listen, this marriage is against Jewish law. You should not be doing this. This is wrong. And Herod Antipas did not, did not like it one bit because he was kind of the puppet king of, of uh, Jewish occupied Rome, of Israel occupied Rome. In other words, Rome kind of occupied Israel, but they would anoint these kind of kings to oversee the affairs of the people. And Herod Antipas was from that line. So he was kind of the puppet king of Rome. He did what Rome wanted them uh, to do, but he knew that if a Jewish criticism about his marriage took hold, he could very, very quickly lose his power and lose his place in, in Israel. So he didn't like it one bit, but he was scared of John. He was scared of, of John's followers and that if he killed off John, uh, he, he would lose his power that way as well. So at a birthday party for Herod, there's a dance at the party by his stepdaughter and the dance kind of pleased Herod to a level where he said, I will give you anything you want as the result of the entertainment you've brought to this party. And his stepdaughter goes to her mom and she says, here's what you're going to ask for, the head of John the Baptist. She was over it too. She was over the public criticism as well. And so he felt stuck. He didn't know what to do. And so he had John killed, right? This began a multiple year paranoia in Herod Antipas that John the Baptist was going to come back from the dead and wreak havoc on his life. And so he, he was very, very paranoid about this. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 14, it says, when Herod Antipas, ruler of Galilee, heard about Jesus, he said to his advisors, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. This is why he can do such, such miracles. So when he starts to hear about the teaching of Jesus and see the miracles of Jesus, he begins to get real paranoid in his mind about this is John the Baptist return, re returned and he is going to unseat me from power and he is going to make my life miserable. It was a paranoid rumor perpetuated by a government official to gain or keep his power. Later, some of the Pharisees will tell Jesus that Herod Antipas is plotting his death uh, and then later, when Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, he appears before Herod uh, Antipas uh, during a trial, and Herod asks him a bunch of questions. Jesus won't answer them, and then he insists that Jesus do a miracle. Jesus refused to do a miracle, so Herod sends him to Pilate, where Jesus is later sentenced to death, and we're told later that this move by Herod to defer to Pilate, this move by Herod actually made he and Pilate, uh, brought them together as powerful friends. So here's the deal. It looks different in our culture, obviously, but understand this, government has been trying to figure out how to use Jesus to gain and keep power for a long time. This may be cynical, but have a discerning ear about what your government officials say to you about Jesus. It's possible it's genuine, it's possible it's right, but government has a long history, we could go through a lot of history lessons, government has a long history of attempting to use Jesus for their own political gain, for their own political power, and just have a discerning eye and ear about what your government says about Jesus. For me, a great sign is always, when I see a government official break away from their party to advocate for the Jesus way, I'm always super impressed by that. Because like they serve Jesus, not their party. 
And I'm always really, really impressed when I see a candidate do that. That's a huge thing for me. This is a person who serves Jesus over party. But that's the lesson number one. They thought, man, this was an idea put forward by Herod Antipas trying to preserve his power and just be careful about what government officials say about Jesus. He goes on to say, some say Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Again, I get this theory that in the Old Testament, um, Elijah kind of happens onto the scene in a really weird way. Uh, It is during the rule and reign of a very evil king named Ahab, and all of a sudden, here's how the Bible starts the Elijah story. Now, Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah the Tishbite, where'd he come from? He just happens onto the scene. And Ahab and his wife Jezebel were really, really evil, uh, evil leaders. And Elijah goes through this ministry where he is displaying these miracles of God. Uh, he closed up the heavens so there was no rain for three years. He called down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice of God, which the pagan priests were unable to do. If you ever want to read a hilarious story, Elijah against the Baal prophets, it is enjoyable to read it so hilarious. At one point, he's like, maybe your gods are having a bathroom break. Maybe they're on the toilet. Maybe that's why they can't come through for you, right? And so it's a really, really funny story. Uh, He does that. He multiplies this flour and oil in, in the home of a widow. He resurrects her son from the dead. He prophesied to Ahab, Uh, that dogs would lick up his blood, and to Jezebel, that dogs would consume her flesh. That's the type of preacher Ahab was. I'd like to preach a sermon, Ahab. Point number one, dogs are going to lick your blood. And point number two, dogs are going to eat the flesh of your wife. Would anyone like to respond in prayer? Right? Would anyone like to respond? That's the type of preacher he was. All of that came to pass. So he spoke with God, he does these miracles, uh, and then all of a sudden he's just taken up to heaven uh, in a a fiery chariot drawn by fiery uh, horses, and that's the end of Elijah's ministry. And so the way that he left this earth led a lot of people to believe that someday Elijah is coming back, and Elijah was a prophet that confronted a king. He confronted a king. He confronted Ahab. He confronted his wife Jezebel, and they hated him for it. And a lot of people wanted Jesus to be that. Rome was occupying Israel at the time, and they believed that someday when the Messiah came, he would be like Elijah, and he would confront the evil king. And he would attack the evil king, and he would condemn the evil king, and that's what they wanted the Messiah to do. Not that Elijah was violent, but he was aggressive. He was an aggressive prophet of God uh, for his time and in his place. He was confrontive. And so I think a lot of people were taken back by an approach like this in in Mark 12. Later, uh, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Here's the question, the trick. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and and, and let me take a look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is on this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. And they were amazed by him. Now, some were amazed by him in a positive way, and some were amazed by him in an angry way. Because there was a whole type of Jewish thought in the first century 
that said, we need to get aggressive against Rome. We need to drive Rome out. And they sincerely thought that the Messiah would be like Elijah. And he came, and honestly, he didn't talk much about the Roman Empire. Instead, he talked about his kingdom. He didn't talk about the kingdom of Rome. He talked about his kingdom and what life looks like in his kingdom, how we are to be a grace people, how we are to be a loving people, how we are to tell the truth, a people of conviction. And he talked about developing a group of people that would go out from their time with him and change the world and lead people to a life-changing relationship with him. It's not that Christians are never to speak truth to power, I think that is sometimes what we're called to do. Like Elijah, we are called to speak truth to power. It was different because Ahab was a king of Israel and Elijah was a prophet of Israel and he was a corrupt king, so it looks a little bit different. But our primary calling is to the Jesus kingdom. That's what we're called to be. That's who we're called to to follow, to be a different people, to be a holy people, to be a transformed people by grace. And in a political year where we can get all amped up, I'm already hearing it. It's just barely February. And our, this is the most important election of our lifetime. It is so important. It, everything is at stake. Change needs to happen. Where you hear those types of message, messages, first of all, I would say decaffeinated coffee is a thing. Enjoy it. <laughs> Second, I would say this. Don't underestimate the power that comes from Christians living Jesus on display day to day. Don't don't underestimate the power that comes from Christians living like Jesus every single day on a day-to-day basis because you can't necessarily change Washington. We've all learned this. You can't change Washington. You can love your neighbor. You can give a gift. You can show grace. See, they hoped for an Elijah because they wanted someone to confront their Ahab and their Jezebel, and they wanted it to be messy. And Jesus came and talked about the kingdom. He said, here's what what I want you to do. Let's not take up arms and drive Rome out. Here's what I want you to do. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Pay your taxes. Sorry, I know it's coming up, but pay your taxes. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Show grace. Serve. Be a Jesus follower in a corrupt and broken world. And don't underestimate the difference that can come when lots of followers of Jesus do that. Some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, and he was, he was a prophet in Israel's time, and, and he was a weeping prophet. And his role was God called him to confront Israel's idolatry, their social injustice, their sin, and he did it in a very weeping way. <laughs> He was the weeping prophet, and he was urging them to turn back to God before Babylon came in and took Israel uh, captive. And so he's all about repentance, he's all about turning back to God, and he's all about them repenting, and they just refused. So Babylon comes in, and they have Jerusalem surrounded. Jerusalem's going to fall, without question. Jeremiah had told them this was going to happen. Now it's happening. Uh, And Jeremiah is in prison. He's already been prisoned for his prophecies. 
He's in prison, and the tone of, of what he says changes on a dime because it moves from repent and turn away from your sin to this is happening, right? God has decided what he's going to do, but now I'm going to give you hope. And so he does this extraordinary thing from prison. Uh, he contacts a, a cousin of his uh, to, to negotiate a deal to buy a field in his hometown just outside of Jerusalem, a field in Anathoth. He does this from prison, and from prison, Jeremiah announces these words. He says, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields, it says, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be brought into this land. And so in this moment of where Babylon has surrounded Israel, Jerusalem, and they are about to fall, Jeremiah says, God's not done with you yet. There's hope that someday you'll have vineyards again. And someday you'll have jobs in the land again. God has promised you this land, Israel, and someday you'll occupy the land again. This is happening right now. You're gonna be taken into captivity away from the land, but someday you will return. And that is exactly what happens. Someday you'll return and you'll thrive in the land again. And it became very much about nation building. Uh, Israel's time in captivity. It was, let's remain faithful, let's remain strong while we're in captivity, and someday, Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah? He said, someday we're gonna be released from captivity and we're gonna return to the land, and when we return to the land, we wanna be a strong nation and a good nation and a thriving nation. And for, during that time in captivity, it became all about making the nation as strong as it could be. And a lot of people wanted Jesus to be a Jeremiah. They were, they were in captivity with Rome and they wanted Jesus to really dial down into nation building, to make Israel as strong as they could be and as thriving as they could be so that when the day came that Rome finally left first century Jerusalem, they would have the groundwork laid to be a very, very strong nation. And we're not Israel, but I hear a lot of Christians that still think that's the role of the Messiah that the Messiah is gonna come into us as America and almost the sole role of the Messiah is to make the nation strong, to make the nation strong. And, and God, and, and more importantly, Jesus, was just doing this thing that went beyond that, right? He, he's doing this thing that went beyond that. He is laying this groundwork in his ministry for Israel to be saved, spiritually, for Israel to come into a relationship with him. He's laying the groundwork for Gentiles, for those that are not Jewish. He's laying the groundwork for Gentiles to be saved and to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. He was different from Jeremiah. His vision was bigger. It was for Israel to be sure, but it was for Gentiles. It was for all nations. And, and you and I ought to be grateful because it was for you and it was for me. Because there is this invitation from Jesus that comes out to us an invitation to be welcomed into his kingdom so that we can know him in this life and in the next. So Peter says, there's all these theories about who you are, that you're gonna be, that you're uh, John the Baptist that has come back to enact revenge, that you're Elijah that has come in to confront the evil king, that you're Jeremiah that has come in to make us into a strong nation. And all these theories existed around who Jesus was. And he says, but what about you, Peter? Who do you say that I am? And God gives him these words, this incredible confession of our faith. He says, here's who I think you are. You are the Messiah, the Christ, 
And I don't think Peter knew exactly what this meant. For all we know, Peter came from a background of zealotry where, man, we're going to drive Rome out. He may have thought that, or we're going to nation build, or we're going to do this, or we're going to do that. But we have no idea what Peter thought that meant. But he says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And this is why Jesus, I think Jesus knows he doesn't exactly know. He says, I know you didn't come up with this on your own, Peter. I've been spending time with you. There's no way you came up with this on your own. My father gave this to you. And looking back, though, here's the great thing about us. We know what he meant by it. We know what was meant by it. That Jesus would come to earth and pay the penalty for our sins. For Israel, for Gentiles, for all nations. Not just so that they could be forgiven, although we are forgiven, but so we could gain entrance into the Jesus kingdom. So we could know God and worship God and live in his kingdom in this life and in the next. The Jesus invitation is an invitation to be forgiven. It's an invitation for God to be your God. It's an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to obedience. It's an invitation for eternity. It's an invitation from Jesus to be with him now, today, and forever. And it's an invitation for you. And it's an invitation for me. It says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. But you are also the Son of God. Messiah and Christ is a statement of what he came to do Son of God is a statement of his authority. That Jesus, I believe you are the son of God and you have the authority to do what you promised to do. That you are God in human flesh. So when Jesus says he can forgive you, Peter believed that he had the authority to do just that. When he says he will command you, that he can command you and direct you, Peter believed he had the authority to do that. When he says he can lead you, Peter believed he had the authority to do that. When he says he's inviting you into his kingdom, that Peter believed he had the authority to do that. So it's not just what he does, it's that he can do what he does. So he's offering grace and new life and entrance into the kingdom and eternity. And it's not just that's what he does, it's that he can. So do you want new life? Do you want eternity with God? Do you want freedom? Do you want grace? Jesus as the son of God teaches us that he can. And Jesus says, man, on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. On this rock, on this confession that you just gave, Peter, I will build my church. This is why whenever someone here is baptized, whenever somebody places their membership here, whenever we have these types of conversations, we ask them to repeat this very confession after us. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said about that confession, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades will not defeat it. And it makes sense, right? A movement based on this sort of idea of thought that I believe, this is what I believe, a, a movement based on our thinking and our submitting to the lordship of Jesus, it cannot be stopped. It absolutely cannot be stopped because it's based on the lordship of Jesus and living his, in his kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that cannot be overcome. Here's what's crazy about this. I meet so many scared Christians and they get scared that like Christianity is going to cease to exist or that, they, they, that this thing's going to happen. And I think it's because they forget what Jesus has said we're actually doing. 
They think we're nation building like Jeremiah did. Or they think we're confronting the king like Elijah did. They think maybe even we're enacting revenge like people believe John the Baptist would. They think it's about political power, accumulating votes, and that can be stopped. A nation can be stopped. Prosperity can be stopped. But in reality, we are a part of a Jesus movement that is built on this great confession of faith, getting people all over the world to see Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, and that cannot be stopped. Oh, people have tried. People have tried. But it cannot be stopped. There is no law that can stop it. There is no amount of persecution that can stop it. As a matter of fact, in persecuted countries, people see their need for Jesus even more and Christianity thrives. There is no cultural shift that can stop it. So do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Do not be discouraged. Because our kingdom is built on this great confession that the gates of Hades will not overcome it, will not stop it. It is bigger and better than any other thing people may think that we're doing. Don't lose sight of it. And throughout the Gospels, we see these confessions about Jesus, all throughout them, that Elizabeth acknowledges Jesus as Lord, and John the Baptist inside of her jumps with joy inside of her. Simeon and Anna on the temple the day Jesus was dedicated, they affirm Jesus as the Christ. Andrew will tell his brother, we have found the Messiah. Philip will tell Nathaniel, we have found the one that Moses told us about. Nathaniel will declare, Rabbi, surely you are the son of God. And John the Baptist will call Jesus. In the middle of a sermon, he just kind of stops. He says, hey, look, right there, as Jesus walks over this hill, right there, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Even a Roman centurion on the cross confessed, surely this was the Son of God. But the crown jewel has got to be Peter's. And you know what's amazing about Peter's confession? What's amazing about Peter's confession is the confession you get to make, and hopefully you do make, is even bigger than Peter's. It's better. Say that, how... Could you say that? How on earth? Here's what Romans uh, 10 says. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that sounds just like Peter's confession. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what makes your confession better. Because you get to confess this knowing the resurrection and Peter didn't. Peter was looking forward to what Jesus was going to do. I'm convinced, based on what Jesus said, Peter didn't have a clue. God just gave him some words, and he said the words. So, you know, we give Peter credit, but it's like, just say this, Peter, okay? We've seen you say enough. All right, so, right, if you know know Peter's story, you know that he put his foot into his mouth a lot. So God's like, just say it this way, right? And, And Peter did. But you and I, We get to make the same confession of faith. But we have the resurrection. Bolstering the claims of Jesus, proving the claims of Jesus. The resurrection changes everything. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because of that resurrection. And so I think back to my family. That my mom and dad, they were not raised in church really at all. My mom was raised going to mass 
kind of here and there, but they really weren't raised going to church on, my dad in particular, on any regular basis. And one day, a church knocks on their door. My parents open the door, and they're like, would you like to come to church? And I was a baby, and they looked down, and they saw the devil in my eyes. <laughs> and they said, we need the Lord. Forth with. We need the Lord. And so they went to church, and they started to learn about Jesus. And one day, they stood in front of a church, and they were baptized, and that pastor asked them, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And they said, yes. And it changed our family forever. And I was raised going to the church, and I was raised learning about Jesus. And one day, the Spirit got a hold of me, and I responded to the gospel, and I went forward to a, in a church in Albion, Michigan, and I was baptized that day. And that pastor looked at me before my dad baptized me. And he said, repeat after me. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then my family was changed. My nuclear family. And a short time ago, my son Sam approached Cheryl and I and said, I think I want to be baptized. Can we talk about that? And we went through all the normal kind of classes and talking about it. And just a short time ago, my son Sam was in that baptistry. And I had him repeat these words after me. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And we baptized him into the name of Jesus. And now guess what? His family's going to be changed. I don't know what your family legacy is. I know everything changes when you make this confession. Yes, your sins are forgiven. Absolutely, your sins are forgiven but you are welcomed into a kingdom with a king who loves you and cares about you and will direct your path well. So I want to have you, if you believe this, I just want to have you repeat this after me. I believe, I believe. Jesus, is the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It changes every single thing. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for the day. We thank you for this great confession of Peter. And Lord, we want to affirm today that there's been a lot of theories about what you're trying to do in the world, that you're nation building, you're a king confronter, and there's some truth to some of those things, honestly. The wild theory that you were John the Baptist back to enact revenge on Herod Antipas, um, we, we know you're not that way. But whatever the wild theories are in our culture about you, we want to be a people right now that affirm in this moment, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And because of that, may our marriages be different as we follow your lead. May our families be different as we follow your lead. May our lives be different as we follow your lead, as we receive forgiveness for our sins and then walk in new life. May everything be different because of you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together right now as a church family. 
And they're going to pass out uh, two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing his blood. And this is an opportunity for us to just think about what Jesus came to do. That he came to forgive us of our sins and invite us to be a part of his kingdom. And how everything is different because of it. And so you can just thank him for what he's done and what he's offered. And just reaffirm your belief in him. That you believe he is the Christ. The son of the living God. And that it really, really does change everything. And then I'll come back up here in just a few minutes and we'll receive communion all together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this invitation that you offer us into your kingdom to make you Lord, to to have you be our savior who forgives our sin. May we walk in that truth and may it truly change everything as a result. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hey, really glad you guys were here today. We're going to continue on in uh, Big Ten series uh, next Sunday. And uh, if you have any prayer requests or prayer needs, questions about our church, question about making Jesus your Lord, a couple of our elders will be in the overflow immediately after church, and they'd love to interact with you there, meet with you, pray with you. Uh, You can just meet them uh, over there right after church. Uh, Really glad that you're here. Um, Do we have any Kansas City fans in the house here? 49ers fans? Commercial fans, right? Okay. (laughs) Food fans, right? Okay. All right. Uh, Enjoy the Super Bowl. God bless you guys. Let's close with one last song, and uh, we'll we'll see you next Sunday. All right. The Christ, the Christ.